dearly. But Lord, for it to be offered to you, we abide by your word now. We come and pray, O oh Lord, may this word be as the, as the um, knife, the, the scalpel of Hebrews 4. May it divide between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. And, and Lord, rearrange us and make us a people to be wholly consumed by you on the altar of Christ. Father, use us, we pray. Bless us, open our eyes. And Lord, may this be more than a time of, of academic interest, but Lord, a time of genuine fellowship where we abide, where we are examined, where we fellowship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Many of you know the theme or the purpose of the book of Job was to teach God's people and beyond the basis upon which we are to approach God. The basis upon which would we, we would fellowship with God and commune with God. It was written at a time when it was understood by most that good comes to a person's life or bad based upon merit. Based upon what you do before God. And if you do right, then God will bless you. If you do wrong, God will curse you. And it be begins, as you know, with this horrible providence, multiple providences in Job's life where Satan afflicts him. And the end of, this, of these horrible afflictions is the death of his children and the loss of his wealth and eventually the loss of his health. And initially, as you know, Job responds incredibly. He, he praises God. He worships God and he doesn't sin. But then his three friends come. And while they may have meant good, nevertheless, it was very bad. And in essence, they were that little poker that kept poking and irritating him such that he came to the point where he lost it. He gets so discouraged because of what was going on? Job 6, I'll read it to you. Then Job answered, listen to it. Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my sin. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as, as, as thy target? God, what have I done to deserve this. So where his friends led him to. Now why did he say that? Well because again. He thought that bad things happen to you. If you do bad. And good things happen to you. If you do good. And yet he had lived a life of blamelessness. We know that from Job 1. We know that this is a blameless man. There's no, that Job's done nothing wrong. But all he can think is. He had to have done something wrong. For this horrible providence to come upon him. And after he thought about it long enough. Through his friends pokings, he concluded, wait a second, I've lived the same life today as I did three months ago, three years ago, and God blessed me then. Why am I being cursed today? And so he began struggling and approaching this, this precipice, this, this, this gulf, this, this chasm that, he that you don't want to go to, and that is, there's something wrong with God. And so he says in Job 20, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news of my father saying, A baby boy has been born to you. I mean, this man is depressed. He wishes he was dead. And then God comes to him and meets him in Job 38. And from 38 to 41, God opens his eyes to see that God is awesome. God is glorious. And while God doesn't answer, he doesn't explain to Job chapter 1, he doesn't explain what was behind this. But if God is awesome and glorious in power, then he's awesome and glorious in grace. And if he's awesome and glorious in grace, then he's awesome and glorious in his mercy. And if he's awesome and glorious in his mercy and his love and compassions, that must mean that this is not because Job's done something wrong. It's because somehow, some way, it pleased this sovereign, awesome God. 
And so in Job chapter 42, 1 through 6, this book um, ends, and of course there's a, uh, um, a postlude, so to speak. It ends with Job opening, or God opening Job's eyes, having his eyes open, and he says such words like, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. In other words, everything I've known about you is like a camp story or a campfire story. I have heard of thee by the, everything I know about you is like that, those just this little murmurings about what God is. But now my eye sees thee. What happened in Job's life is his understanding of God and his fellowship with God warped light years into the future or whatever, grew light years such that this man came to the point where he could accept all of, all of the woe in love and adoration and amazement of God. If you doubt that, read Job 19. As he goes, oh, someday I'm going to see him in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, I have preached Job 42, 1 through 6. I've preached through that passage. Not here. I've studied it multiple times. And let me tell you, every time I look at it and read it, my heart um, longs for that kind of growth. My heart says, oh God, I want my understanding, my relationship with you to be like a campfire story in comparison to what you could open up my eyes to behold in you this moment. Open my eyes, God. Let me see you. Let me know you. Let me walk more closely with you. That is, I walk away from Job 42 with that passion. And then I walk away asking Is there anything that leads to that? God does that. He did it in Job's life. He did it in Asaph's life. Man, I'll tell you what, I was struggling. Saw the wealthy people not not serving God, having an easy life. And I got to the point, to the precipice, where I almost cursed God. And then I went to the sanctuary of God. And there I perceived their end. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Man, hear those words. That's my desire. And I trust, brothers and sisters, that's your desire this day in your walk with God. God, grow me in your grace. Let me know you. But how does he do that? How does that come to pass? The passage before us this morning, I think, answers that. It's anatomy. It is an anatomy of spiritual renewal. It is a snapshot of God's people 2,500 years ago going from from a ho-hum walk with God um, to this zeal and the vigor that they didn't have before. Or they had it, but they lost it. And so this morning, I want to look with you at the anatomy of spiritual renewal. And this morning, I want to begin first by simply introducing you to the concept of spiritual renewal in scripture and to do that i want you to look with me once again at verse 12 we read then zerubbabel the son of shatil and joshua the son of jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the lord their god and the words of haggai the prophet as the lord their god had sent him it's interesting to look at this passage and know this is spiritual revival This is spiritual renewal. And to see how it's described. And how it's described is not how you and I might at first think. When we think of revival or spiritual renewal, my guess is, I don't know, but my guess is that for most of us, we would think of things like pep rally excitement in my walk with with God. A zeal. That's emotional, this emotionalism that takes over my, my life, that, that I read God's word and it's like Moses with the glory of God, the Shekinah glory beaming out from the book. We think of rededicated lives and decisions for the Lord. And yet, brothers and sisters, that's not what we read here. We don't read any of that. No doubt this impacted their emotion. I'm not debating that. 
But it wasn't emotionalism. You know what emotionalism is? Emotionalism is emotion without warrant. Someone dies, it's going to cause emotion. That's, that's a weight, a caveat, a heaviness, which, which results in an emotional response. You learn about God's character. It should, if you learn about God's grace and his compassions, it should evoke an emotional response in us. But emotionalism is emotion without any stimuli, any substantive stimuli. It's having emotion because of a tune. It's having emotion because of, of a context of, 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 of you know, darkness coming in, uh, to light. Um, that's emotionalism. You don't see that here. You don't see that at all. Let me back up a second. Ian Murray wrote a book called Revival and Revivalism. If you haven't read it, it's a great book to, to read. In it, he describes, he spends a lot of time defining what biblical revival consists of. And then he contrasts that to what he calls or, or, or claimed or, or named revivalism. He looked at the first great awakening, which occurred in 1730 to 1750, involving such men as Jonathan Edwards, um, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley. And he saw that that revival had certain elements, and he compares it to the Second Great Awakening, which occurred in 1795 to 1835 with such men as James McGreedy, John McKee, and Charles Finney. And he saw that the first revival, real revival, consists of things as a change of thinking, repentance, submission to the Lord, obedience, all in response to God's word. Revivalism, on the other hand, had such characteristics as, as emotionalism, nervous pews, calls for decisions, manipulations, rededicated lives over and over and over. And what he demonstrates is that revival, the first great awakening, was of God. Revivalism, the second great awakening, was manufactured by man. And the reason why this is important is because from the Second Great Awakening onwards, the U.S. has had multiple revivals, multiple spiritual awakenings. But because of the influence and the impact of Charles Finney and the like, they've all uh, comported to revivalism. By and large, not all of them. Most of them have. So, for example, the Welsh Revival, 1905, right? Uh, Billy Sunday. Revivalism. The Azusa Street Revival of 1906, the founding of the Pentecostal movement. Revivalism. And the many, many other revivals afterwards, even up and into Billy Graham uh, Crusades. Such that today, when we think of revival, when we think, oh, spiritual renewal, he's preaching on spiritual uh, renewal, that means after this sermon, hopefully... Sometimes, someplace, I'll feel a certain way about God again. And I'll have a zeal for God. And I'll have this, ex, you know, this ecstatic emotion and experience when I read God's word. And when I, when I open it, there'll be like flames and fire and Shekinah glory coming out of God's word. Brothers and sisters, would you notice how this revival looked? God's people simply returning to obedience. No fanfare, no lights, no drama, no lightning, no storms, no thunder, no trumpets. They simply obeyed. So when we start, when we talk about revival or spiritual renewal, we're not talking about an emotional response or something that's going to enable you to open the Word of God and get an emotional response. Hey, listen once again. We have nothing against emotional responses. But if the objective is an emotional response, that's emotionalism. Not what we're after. What we're after is a renewed relationship, dedication, service to God. Well, how does that happen? Does God give us any indication here? And he does. Notice with me the catalyst. 
And as we start looking at it, I've got three points for the catalyst that you can easily see in this text. I want to preface it with this note that, brothers and sisters, this passage was written, 12 through 15 was written, these four verses, to proclaim that God is the one behind revival, not man. Peter um, Verhoff wrote these words. The theme of this passage can be defined as the people's favorable response to God's initiatives. The full emphasis is on God's initiatives. He spoke to the people through the... Uh, a messenger, the prophet Haggai. He promises them his gracious and abiding presence, counteracting their sense of fear and guilt. He activates them to engage themselves to work on his temple, etc. So note this. Whatever we see is all subject to the, to the will and the good pleasure of God. And insofar as that's true, if you and I want spiritual renewal in our lives, that will begin when you and I pray. It's not what we do. It's what God does. So we begin by seeking him and praying, God, revive my heart. Grow me in your grace. Open up my eyes to behold Christ. God, let me walk with you more deeply. Lord, show us your glory. It's that prayer. We begin by praying. We begin pleading. We'll come back out of that. That being said, notice there are three elements that went into this revival here. The first one was, would you notice with me, verse 12a, being in God's word. Verse 12a, notice the word then. We'll stop there. Then. Then points us back to the very first oracle that Haggai gave. The, hear, hear now the word of God. Then the word, verse 3, then the word of the Lord came to Haggai. God's word was proclaimed. God's people became su, um, uh, subject to it. They heard it. They were listening to it. And God, from that proclamation of his word, worked revival in their lives. Brothers and sisters, there will not be revival in your life unless you're in the word of God. You can sit there all day long and say, God, give me a warm burning in my bosom. Brothers and sisters, that's just a warm burning in your bosom. It's not revival unless it's in us. It's in response to the word of God. Sort of like wisdom. A lot of people pray for wisdom, but they don't read God's word. Do you know if you don't read God's words, you won't get wisdom? Because wisdom, by definition, is the ability to apply God's word. If you're not in God's word and you pray for wisdom, you're not going to get it because it is only in response to applying God's word. Well, same thing here. Revival, you and spiritual renewal, we got to be in the word of God. we got to be subject to it, studying it, being in it, reading it. I reference Job. If you, if you have your Bibles and you want to flip there with me, and this isn't in your, your notes, I realize, but just notice with me, Job 42, I want to, I want to po uh, point out one small thing, uh, one big thing. Job 42, 1 through 6, it's Job's response to the Lord's um, word in Job 38 through 41. And what you find is this incredible interaction between the word of God and Job's response. Would you notice with me verse 1? Then Job answered the Lord. What did he answer the Lord to? What, what did God just say? That's Job 38 through 41. So Job's answer in verse 1 and verse 2 is the result of, is in response to the word of God. Of 38 through 41. Then would you notice with me verse 3? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That is a quote. He's quoting Job 38 verse 2. So he's quoting God's word and then he's giving a response to it. Therefore I have declared that which I do not know. Verse 4. Hear now I will speak. I will ask thee and do thou um, instruct me. He's quoting 38 3. He's quoting again God's word, and then he says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, right? Notice Job's renewal occurred in response to the word of God. Go back to our, our text. Jonathan Edwards wrote a lot about revival, and one of the things he was quick to say is revival is always in response to God's word. In that context, he'd always quote Isaiah 55. 
which says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the ear, eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The first catalyst when it comes to your and my spiritual renewal and vigor is going to be you and I submitting ourselves to God's word. And I'm going to suggest to you, according to Deuteronomy 18, the law of the king, and seeing how you all are all kings, right? We're all many kings and queens. The law of the king is that we read the word of God every single day. Let me encourage you, not by way of a moral, a command. I wouldn't say that God's word teaches you have to read it every day. But by way of example, brothers and sisters, be in the word daily. Cultivate a lifestyle where reading the word of God, studying it, is as natural and a part of your normal routine as showering and eating. Job said, I've treasured the word of, my, of thy mouth more than my necessary food. So if it's a choice between eating and being in God's word, choose the latter every time. Being in God's word. If you and I are going to know spiritual vigor, spiritual rejuvenation, it will always be in and by and with God's word. Secondly, would you notice, I have trust there, and that's the particular here, but I want to back it up a little bit and just put submitting to God's word. Trust in God's word, submitting. Here it was trust, but that's the sub-point or the sub-note of a larger uh, topic, and that would be submitting to it, responding to it, maybe the better word. Notice with me, 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke um, by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you. Now notice the interaction between that statement and what comes next. I am with you, declares the Lord. So, in response to that declaration, we read, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatael, and the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the spirit of all the remnant of the people. God came, and the message that, that, that now Haggai gave here was, God is with you. He already said it in the last vision. He's saying it again. God is with you. You know what happened? God's people respond. They believed it. They submitted to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have stirred their hearts. They believed it. They submitted to it. They, they, they came to understand that truth in light of their current circumstances. Do you see it? Submission. Trust, responding to God's word. Put whatever you want there. But that's the second element. They were responding. You know what God did? When you respond to the truth of his word, he stirs your spirit. The word for stir in the Hebrew is a word for when you wake someone up. You come and you sort of stir them. You poke them. You wiggle them a little bit. Right? And that little wiggle that rouses you from slumber, that's the word used here. God that message, I am with you, aroused them from their spiritual slumber. So that there was this, this desire to submit to God, a desire to serve God, to know God, to be where God wanted them to be. There was a desire to please God, to be, to be the people God wanted them to be and do. How glorious. And how did it come? Because God's people heard the word of God and then they submitted to it. They believed it. They trusted it. They responded to it. Brothers and sisters, I would exhort you on this point. So many of us have this idea that, that, or maybe you're getting it, maybe you got it from the first point, that there's a mechanical nature to this. And if you're getting that, that's revivalism. So don't, please don't walk away with that. But there's a mechanical nature to it that, oh, I just got to read God's word and he'll produce a revival because God's word's magic. Remember in seminary, hearing a, a chapel addressed by Dr. Chapel saying the title was Poof, It's Magic. He said, you all are going to minister in a world where people think that there is a secret word in God's word that will make everything okay. And you may even have that idea. He goes, God's word is not magic. You can't just read and have people go, whoa. It doesn't happen that way. God's word is something that you and I eat. That word was found and I ate it. What does it mean? That means 
you're taking the word of God in and you're examining your life against it. You're allowing it to examine your life. Think of the image of Hebrews chapter 4. Okay, and I referenced this earlier, but it's a beautiful picture um, for us in God's word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. He's describing the process of a burnt offering. So this is all the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system, specifically a burnt offering, where the priest would take a knife after you cut its throat and the whole bit, and they would dissect the animal and rearrange it on the altar burnt offering to be burnt up in whole. With that image in your mind, listen to it. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of his heart. And there's no creature hidden from his height, but all things, now get this, are open and laid bare. That's the burnt offering. We have been, re, God's word dices us and slices us and, and rearranges our, our, our priorities, rearranges our lives. Oh, I can't do that anymore. Rearranges the way that we think. And it's open and laid bare before God where we then say, Lord, here I am. Take me. Take this thought. Take this future. Take this job. Take this family. Take my health. Whatever it might be. That's what God's word does. But how, but how does it do it? Bind with God's word or, or bind with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bind with God's word does that. How? As he opens our eyes to it. That element where you and I grapple with the word of God. It's not a check mark Christianity where I go, hey, he said build the word of God into my life. Every single morning I'm reading. No doubt about it. One chapter. Got the chapter done. Walk away and don't think about the rest of the day. No, 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 no. You read that chapter. And then you pray and you spend 10, 15, 20 minutes in prayer praying through that chapter. Praying through that verse. Oh, I don't know what that word looks. Look it up. Praying through it and, and, and coming to say, God, make this part of me. And you examine your life in light of the word. Search me, O oh God, Psalm 139. And know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. How does he do it? In his word, by his word, through his word. God, as I read this passage, search me, open my heart, dissect me, reveal any hurtful way in me, and lead me thereby in the everlasting way. So brothers and sisters, first and foremost, it's, 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 it's being in the word of God. Secondly, it's responding to the word of God. Notice this with me, the third catalyst. And this is a huge question. The issue of time. Verse 15. Notice with me 15. It's not even a sentence. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. I would be willing to bet that if you were studying this on your own, we, most of us would skip over this verse. On the 20, what? 20, okay, 24th day of the sixth month. Is that June. In the second, it can't be June. I mean, this is a different calendar than the Gregorians. The second year, Darius the king. Okay, so the second year, well, I don't know what this means, and who cares? What does it matter? Let's just keep going. Brothers and sisters, to miss this point, to miss this dating, is to, is to really potentially trip yourself up when it comes to spiritual renewal. Notice with me the date indicators. Haggai 1.1, first um, prophecy, the, the first sermon on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Scholars, not me, have figured that out to be, I'm uh, sorry, that was 15, Haggai 1.1, in the second year of Darius the king on the first day of the sixth month, sorry. That verse, verse 1, is August 29th, 520 B.C. August 29th. Now, would you know what? We went from the first day of the sixth month to the 24th day of the sixth month, same second year in our text, which means, do the math, carry the, uh, the math, and I obviously can't do math. I was told that a couple weeks ago. <laughs> um, 23 days. God preached Haggai 1, had Haggai 1, 1 through 11 preached, which was the genesis, the impetus for the revival, verse 12, then Zerubbabel. Okay, in, 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 in response to that, 
23 days later. You read it, and it sounds like Zerubbabel, the very moment that he heard this text, we read then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, responded. No, 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 23 days later. Now, um, uh, one Bible commentator, Tyndale, um, I'm going blank on her name, I don't know why, but uh, the, the, the gal who does the Tyndale, she suggests the, the six month, not su- suggests, she reports the six month in the Jewish calendar was harvest. So very, it's very likely that Haggai came and preached, and as they heard the word of God, that word settled upon their hearts and haunted them for 23 days. As they, as they harvested and they began looking and going, what's more important, guys? This food or that temple? As they laid in bed at night, not being able to sleep because God's he- hand is heavy upon them. As they think about and review the words that Haggai said in Haggai 1 through 11. They sat there with sleepless nights, meditating upon God's word, as the psalmist says, in my night at night had meditate on your word. They sat there thinking about it and ruminating and allowing the word of God to press upon them and to cut them and divide them over and over and over. Not just once, not just one day, but for 23 days which then culminates in the second prophecy, the second oracle where God comes through Haggai and says, I'm with you. And that was the catalyst. That's all they needed to know. God is indeed with us. Let's get to work on the temple. And you know what happened for the next four years? Worked laboriously on that temple building. From 560 or 520 down to 516, they worked on building the temple till 516 it was finished and it was rededicated. Time. I can't tell you how many people in the context of ministry that I have talked to who I'll say, hey, you want to grow in your walk? Read the word of God every day. Make sure you apply it. Don't just read it as a check mark. So point one and point two, submit to it. Really just open your heart up before the Lord. Do a lot of meditating upon what that text means and what difference it makes in your life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll say, I did that and it doesn't work. Now, how long did you do it for? Well, I did it for a month. See, so often you hear this and we respond by saying, How long must I before the Lord changes me? And you know what? My question to you is going to be flipping it. How long will you? Is God worth it to you? How long will you read the word of God every day and strive to allow the word of God to transform you? How long will you do that? A week? A month? (laughs) It took God 70 years to fulfill the promise of of restoration. Daniel waited 70 years. And he prayed three times a day. And he never ceased. How long will you, Christian? How, How important is this to you? Incredible. You know what? If 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 we could just put in a bottle, capture in a bottle. That impulse that occurs when someone dishonors us or offends us and how we go home and we think of that conversation and we dissect it and we mold it and we shape it and we think of, oh, if only I'd said this or if I'd said that. If we could somehow package that, take out the venom and the bitterness and put in the glories of, of God and his word and, and drink it. It would make you, brothers and sisters, I know people. I've talked to people who are still bitter and still struggling with things that occurred in their lives 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're still mulling on it. How long must I? Brothers and sisters, if you're saying must, you're in the wrong room. You want, you want revivalism. If you want revival, you're the importunate widow who will not leave. You're Jacob who will wrestle with God and keep wrestling until God blesses you. And I don't mean money. I don't mean 
name it, blesses me by opening my eyes to behold the glory and the greatness of his, of his grace, of his holiness, of his, of his person, of his being. How long must you? May that language be gone. It's how long will you? And I hope every one of you here are willing to say, I'm in it for the rest of my life. God, I will be in your word, and I will, I will open my heart up to you. I will labor. But God, you must do it. Transform me in your time. Until then, may my life, my walk with you be a constant um, uh, wrestling and, 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 and fellowshipping around God's word and what it means. And not just what it means in the text, but what it means in my life. First one's important, most important. Then uh, secondly, what it means in my life. Oh, what does the word of God mean? And what does it mean for me in, this, in, the, in the way I'm living today? In my relationship with my spouse. In this conflict I just had. You know, I'm going to mull over that conflict, but now no longer as, as an offended individual, but as one who recognizes Brothers, let me, let me I'm go off script here just slightly here. You know what's amazing? I, I was talking with, with a, 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 a sister, brother, and Lord recently. And it was interesting to know, you know the passages in Scripture where Paul has the three statements about himself, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Ephesians 3, 8, I'm the least of all saints. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, I'm the foremost of sinners. You know what's interesting about that? Where's the book of Romans written in this? Romans 7, 14 through, through the end. Where Paul says, I'm, I'm, oh, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I do, what you're, you know where that was? That was written with the first statement, 1 Corinthians 15, I, I'm the least of the apostles. You know what Paul's conclusion was after Romans uh, 7? Was I'm the least of the apostles. And then about four years later, still grappling with God's word. He came to the shocking realization that he's the least of all saints, Ephesians 3, 8. You know what? And he's not, this isn't a joke. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm the, I've sinned more than any, any Christian that I know. I'm the least of all saints. And then towards the end of his life, four or five more years later, he writes in 1 Timothy 1, 15, I'm the foremost of sinners. You know what he just said there? He just said that choose the greatest sinner you can think of right now, Hitler, Bundy. My sin is worse, and I know it is. Where, where did that come from? It's Paul grappling with the word of God, allowing it to, to show him who he really is. So I take God's word in the context of, of conflict, and I realize, you know what? Nine-tenths of that conflict's me. And my choice to, to hold a grudge, nine-tenths of that conflict's me. And my pride that made me respond the way that I did, nine-tenths of that conflict's me. Oh, God, change me. It used to be nine-tenths of the context is her. And if you just change her, God, I wouldn't be so miserable in my life. Now, by being in God's word, I realize it's me, Lord. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, responding to the word of God over time long time in your life. And you know what we call that? We call that waiting on the Lord. You ever heard that expression? I know you know it. God's word. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. If you wait for the Lord, you'll be strong, says David. Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Isaiah 40. Isaiah says, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. You know that text. What's waiting on the Lord? You know what waiting on the Lord is? It's beautiful. It's this. It's, it's this. Trusting God is relying upon God at a moment in time. That's what it means to trust in God. I'm relying upon God in a moment of time. Waiting on the Lord is relying upon God over the course of time. We're called to trust God. We're called to, to believe him. But we're also called to wait upon him. You know what he's saying? The blessing that David says, wait for the Lord, be strong. If you and I trust in God over the long haul, we take God's word and, and we fellowship with it over time. What happens to us as we constantly are allowing our souls to be transformed by the renewing of our minds from reading God's word? We become strong in the faith. 
We become strong in Christ. We become burdened for our Lord. Time. All right. With that, brothers and sisters, would you notice with me the consequence? What is biblical, spiritual, renewal, revival? These are passages that we would use. Many passages like this we could refer to. 1 Samuel, the renewal that we read in 1 Samuel, God's people there. Ezra, we need it. We read renewal. All over the place we read it. Notice the elements of this particular renewal. And this gives you a sense of what you should be looking for. Not light, not lightning, not glorious thunder, but what? 1 verse 12b, understanding. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. The word obey is not the typical word for obey. The word for obey here is, as you've got it there, shama. And that word in the Hebrew, those of you who know Hebrew, which I know there's a couple here who do, or if you know Greek, akuo, um, it's the same word, and it is the word for hear. Okay, so the word is, so the te- it's, it's what we read in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema. So the people of God heard. Now they translated obey because, of course, it translates that way, this action of hearing. But notice in the Hebrew, hearing carries a threefold sense. Shema. Hearing, understanding, and acting. That's why they translate obey. But acting is simply the frosting on the cake. For you to hear, you have to first hear the word, be in the word of God, and understand it. So the first characteristic that we see when God renews people, what do you get? You get understanding, which leads to action. And for this, brothers and sisters, once again, you're at the mercy of God. Because God is the one who not only opens the, the sinner's eyes being dead in your trespasses and sins, you can't see God. Your eyes are blinded, 2 Timothy 2.24, by Satan. So once you become a Christian, God opens your eyes, and we think that's it. He's opened my eyes, I see everything. That is not it. Luke 24, the apostles on the road to Emmaus, what do we read? And it came about that they were conversing, discussing. Jesus himself approached, began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Christ was present, and they didn't see him. How many times have you read God's word, Christ is present, and you don't see him? What did it take for the disciples to see Christ? Well, at Luke 24, 31, and their eyes were opened by God. This is beautiful. We always have this idea that non-believers can't see, but believers can. That's true. Clearly that's true. We have, we've been vivified. We've been, the, the new life is in us. We see things that the non-believer can't see. But that doesn't mean we see all. God must open our eyes, even as Christians. So David prayed in Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Guys, I pray this almost every single morning when I'm in God's word. Lord, show me your glory. Open my eyes that I might behold Wonderful things from your word. Not for the sake of fun facts. That's in the context of me being transformed by it. Secondly, would you notice reverence? Reverence. Verse 12c. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet is the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. This is huge. On account of our sin nature, do you know what we do by default? Make much of ourselves. That's what we're about, man. We are committed to that. Christianity, in the end, when everything's been said and done, has to be about me. Bible study has to be about me. The church has to be about me. Fellowship, name it. The songs have to be about me, right? That's what we are. We majored in that. And we major in that at the fall. You know, the, the non-believer, we come by and actually Romans 1, you know the text, says, that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be, God, uh, to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the, of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And he goes on. Brothers and sisters, the non-believer is pictured in Scripture, not as inventing religions to get to God, but as inventing religions to get away from God. Islam. Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and Buddhism, all of it are, 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 the, are the futile attempts of man to get away from God. 
They hate God. In hell, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a Hebrewism for anger, not pain. The Jews were gnashing their teeth at Stephen when he was saying what he was saying. It's anger. God's people in hell, brothers and sisters, they're not there going, oh, I wish I had another chance. They're there saying, I hate you, God. And if I had a chance to crucify you, I'd do it all over again. That's our nature. So what do we do by nature as Christians? Even though we're saved, there's the old man that's still there. And that and the old man says, it's all about me. Do you know what happens when you and I, when God comes near, draws near, and grants a spiritual awakening? That spiritual awakening or renewal translates in the form of reverence. We realize that I am but a worm. Less than a worm. I'm an amoeba. You know, worms has this derogatory idea. You know, they've changed the amazing grace from uh, whatever, wretch or worm to whatever. Right? Guys, do you know what? In his day, that was the lowest, most scuzziest thing. We might translate it someplace else now. I, I'm, 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 less than an ame- I'm less than the excrement of an amoeba. How's that? Okay. Uh, that's, what, that's what I am. But I don't, that's not, that's not negative. That's glorious when you think yet that being set his love on me to save me and to make me into his child and to walk with him in the cool of of the day, that makes me all of a sudden start reverencing God, not only for his transcendency, but for his nearness. Wow, God, you're present in your mercy. I reverence you. Always is 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 the result of spiritual awakening. Lastly, would you notice, Service or devotion. Verse 12, so the Lord stirred up. He woke up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Brothers and sisters, if you look back to chapter 1, verse 6, they're in the middle of a, of a, of a drought. A drought sent, verse 10, verse 9 and 10. Because of their covenant rebellion. We know in 520 they were zealous. They, they, they left the, the comforts and conveniences of modern life to go and live as strangers and aliens and in, in a foreign land again in a destroyed city with a destroyed temple, 520. And wow, they were filled with zeal. But they got there and what happened? Immediately they received persecution and difficulty by the local rabble, the Samaritans. Hey, let us help. No, then we're going to kill you. Let us help. No, then we're going to complain to Darius and say that you're trying to become a sovereign, separate nation. That's exactly what they did. They wrote letters to Darius saying, these people are trying to become a sovereign, separate nation from you. They wrote them to Cyrus. And they're like, oh, he's going to come and attack us. That's not true. So they were frightened. So they withdrew. You know what happened is amazing. Nothing changed. Nothing changed in their life. It's like Habakkuk. He starts Habakkuk 1, burdened with everything. By the end of chapter 3, he's praising God. What changed in his life? Nothing except him. Brothers and sisters, what changed? What changed in their life is nothing. Now, all of a sudden, they're willing to build the temple in the midst of a drought. They're willing to build the temple even though they're going to be attacked and ridiculed and persecuted by the local rabble. They're willing to do all these things. What made the difference? Brothers and sisters, the working of God in the previous points. What does revival look like? What does spiritual renewal look like in your life? It looks like you and I understanding the word of God. You and I growing in our reverence and devotion to the Lord. And then you and I saying, I'm serving the Lord. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. Why? Because you have to. If you don't, God will get you. No, because I love them. Why wouldn't I? Brothers and sisters, in closing, all this is what we've seen. What we've seen is what biblical revival is all about. If you and I are going to enjoy this in our lives, it's going to be at God's hand. And because it's going to be at God's hand, let me encourage you, number one, pray for it. Pray that God, every day, that's my prayer, every day, God, open my eyes. Grow me in your grace. Revive this languishing spirit. Pray for it. God, open my eyes. Show me your glory. 
the weightiness of your being. Secondly, avail yourself daily of God's word, reading, studying, and submitting to it. Examining your life in regards to the word of God. Don't just read and check your box. Read it in fellowship with God as you drive. As you walk, as you go to the market, as you come, right, Deuteronomy 6, right? As you go on, as you, wherever you, uh, you go, fellowship with what you read this morning. And then thirdly, strive to take God's, God at his word and so trust him. God, you said you'd be my needs. You bear my needs. I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Because there's a whole lot of unbelief in this heart of mine. Transform me, God. Be real, and, but yet open up your heart unto the Lord and trust God. Brothers and sisters, what a glorious privilege that is ours to be children of such a glorious being who actively is involved in your and my life every moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and the incredible exhortation that no doubt it was, and the words that it meant to that people in that generation. And Lord, what they've meant to me as I sort of reframe my mind and Lord, reprogram it with what I've just read here this day. And Lord, looking, Lord, no longer for an experience, but looking, oh Lord, to, to behold you, to understand you and your word, to be bound by it, to trust you accordingly. God, I pray you give Bethel. You raise up this body to be a body, young and old, from the youngest to the oldest, that we would be a people who seek your face daily, who expose ourselves before your word daily, and who daily grapple with you, O Lord. And Father, we know that, there are, that, that we grow in leaps and bounds. And Lord, this may occur with, with dryness in our hearts for, for weeks and months and years. Lord, give, grant the children of this congregation the grace, the adults in this congregation the grace, to have just enough of a feeding, of a feast that would drive them further. But God, grant them diligence. Grant us diligence and and devotion that, Lord, we would not give up after, after a half a life, but we would spend the rest of our days fellowshipping with you, grappling with you, seeking you to your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.